Welcome to episode 91 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, I speak to the Honourable Dame Carol Kidu. Dame Carol Kidu was a Member of Parliament in Papua New Guinea from 1997 to 2012, including a stint as Minister for Community Development. Carol has lived a remarkable life. At age 19, Carol moved to Papua New Guinea and married Sir Buri Kidu, the man who would become the country's first Indigenous Chief Justice. Carol and Buri brought up their children in Buri's village in Port Moresby, where Carol faced a multitude of challenges integrating into traditional village life, but says her unwavering love for Buri and their children and a very supportive mother-in-law got her through. Following Buri's untimely death, Carol entered politics where she remained from 1997 to 2012. For much of this time, Carol was the only female member of parliament. She was the driving force behind a number of important legislative reforms, including the repeal of the Colonial Child Welfare Act, changes to the Criminal Code on Rape and Sexual Assault, and new legislation on child sexual abuse and sexual exploitation of children. In this episode, we discuss the challenges that Papua New Guinean women face in entering politics and the efforts that Carol and others are going to to make sure a woman is elected in the next election. Carol shares many stories of her extraordinary life in Papua New Guinea all the way up to the work she continues to do today. Carol has spoken twice at ANU in recent years and we've added links to the relevant dev policy blogs written by Carol in the show notes. We have also included a link to the transcript of a lecture Carol gave in 2012 titled Sex, Women and the 21st Century, in which she canvasses a wide range of issues facing women in PNG, not often discussed, such as the limited access to contraception and the even more limited access to abortion. Enjoy the episode. Carol, thank you for speaking with me. You grew up in Brisbane and have spent most of your adult life in Papua New Guinea. How did that happen? Well, I fell in love, basically. I was sweet 16 and never been kissed. And I met this young man who was in Toowoomba Grammar School and I was at Sandgate State High School in Brisbane. And we met at a holiday fitness camp. I went with some girlfriends and the Toowoomba Grammar Boys were there. So basically it came out of that. And we then we were in grade 11 at the time. And then we wrote letters and, they, and things. And then we ended up going to university. Uh, and it just all developed. I was the one who pushed marriage. And I understand your marriage was only the second instance of an Australian woman marrying a Papua New Guinean man. Did you feel at the time like you were a trailblazer? No, no, not at all. I realise in retrospect that... Um, my parents were quite incredible, incredible for that era. Yeah, they undoubtedly had a lot of concerns and worries, but they knew Buri and had complete confidence in Buri and the type of person he was. And yeah, but I didn't see myself as a trailblazer or anything like that at all now. I just was all about love, I guess. You then raised six children in a village, living a traditional village life. Can you share some reflections on what that was like? I won't hide the fact that it wasn't easy in many ways, but I came back expecting that and knowing that I was the one who had to adapt uh, in many ways because I, I can't expect a society or a total huge extended family and clan to change for me. 
And if I wanted to be part of the society, I had to learn how to fit in with it. So there was a big learning process, but I, I kind of went there expecting that. And so in a way I was prepared, but I did have a few crying sessions and things. And I, and I had an absolutely wonderful mother-in-law who used to cover for me when she could tell I wasn't coping. And she would cover for me with the other relatives so that they, um, uh, they wouldn't start criticizing, oh, Buri's wife is not, not a good woman and so on, you know. So I was lucky in many ways. I won't say the women in general in the families were going to welcome me with open arms because their thinking was, she's a white lady. She can't work. Because remember in that era, all, just about all the expatriates in Papua New Guinea had domestic servants and all this type of thing. And they lived what appeared to be a very privileged life to a person from a village. It was a different world, yeah. Did you feel as though the women in the village were more hostile towards you than the men were? Uh, more doubtful, not actually hostile. You, you know, in the society I married into, remember that Papua New Guinea has over 800 languages and tribal groups. And so there's not one common culture. And the culture that I married into, it's, um, it's a culture where you can't, you try not to show, you say yes when you mean no and you don't confront. Uh, so it's a very accommodating culture. So um, it took me a long time to interpret between the lines, you might say, and look at the subtleties of, well, yeah, they're saying that, but they don't really mean that, you know. Was there a particular aspect of integrating into village life that you found the most challenging? No, I don't think it's the huge, massive things. It's all the little subtle, subtle things of differences. I'll give you one example where I suddenly realised I have got to change if I'm going to, if we're going to make this work. And I didn't have any intention of not making it work because Buri was well. He was an incredible man. I was very, very lucky. It could have been very different with a different man. Okay, and and when we when we were getting married, when I said you know I pushed the idea of marriage, he said to me, "Well, Carol, don't ever ask me to choose." And I said, what do you mean? He said, don't ask me to choose between you and my people because I won't choose you. No matter how much I love you, I won't choose you. I'll choose my people because I've been educated. This was colonial times, remember, to go back to my people. And so I, I came in knowing that I, I had to make the adjustments if I wanted to see it through. And I remember sometimes wanting to fight Guri, bang him, hit him in the chest and say, I wish I didn't love you. I wish I didn't love you. It's too hard, you know. But there was one incident, as I started to say, I'd come home from school because I was teaching to help earn income. Buri was a lawyer on native wages. I was a teacher on Australian wages. So I earned a lot more than he did because of the structured wage salaries. And so we both had to work to be able to support the, the extended family. And that's one of the difficult things is you, you don't marry a man. You marry a, a family and a clan and a culture. And I had to learn that. Now, I got home from school and I'd been teaching and I was tired. And there were a lot of people in the house, as there always were. And I was in the kitchen cooking with the women. And I could hear my daughter, my firstborn. I have an older adopted son, but my firstborn daughter, I could hear her about three years of age, probably. By West, my standards, she was being very rude and cheeky. And I just lost it. I went out and I smacked her really hard and told her to stop it. And hit her head on the, on the wall. She didn't get badly hurt or anything, but I mean, I, I had lost it. I wasn't coping. And I looked at and I saw the relatives. They just looked at me in complete amazement. And then eventually one of them said, why did you do that? Madi Asilalona. Poor one, she doesn't have a brain yet. And I, I said, really, child rearing is different. Those subtleties are the things that build up and make you um, 
you know, make it's culture stress more than culture shock. This continual stress of these new ways of doing things. And I sat there, I went to the kitchen, I sat down and I just sobbed uncontrollably. And I realized if I'm going to do this and for the sake of my children, they cannot be confronted with different ideals. Yeah, and, and yeah. I know you were also a school teacher before you made the decision to run as an independent candidate in an election. What prompted the transition from teaching to politics? Oh, undoubtedly Bury's death, my late husband's death. Um, I had never voted until I voted for myself. My late husband, as you may realise, became, became the first Indigenous Chief Justice of Papua New Guinea. And he didn't ever vote. He just did not want to put his mind in a frame where he w- was choosing in politics. He wanted to be completely non-political, apolitical. And um, so neither of us had voted. I knew nothing about politics. But when he was not reappointed to the judiciary in very... Uh, perhaps I say, unfair political circumstances, there were lots and lots of people coming asking him to stand for politics. And he used to say to me, look, I don't think I want to do it. I don't know if I want to do it. Um, but I did see find a letter in his records later where he'd written to Professor Ian Maddox and said, I've decided I will do it. But he'd never said that here. And he used to tell people, give me six months, I'll tell you in six months' time if I will do it or not. And he died almost six months to the day. And so he never did, and he never even told us, yes, I'm going to do it. And I guess I was a woman uh, obsessed with anger, that the country had been had lost a very good person. He was a very good person, anyone you ask about Burikidu, yeah. And that's where I decided, well, bugger them, I'm going to do it. And I knew nothing about it. It was just crazy, absolutely crazy. That's what drove me. It was because of my husband's death. So at the time that you ran for parliament, there had only ever been four other female MPs elected to parliament in Papua New Guinea ever. Were you optimistic about your chances? Oh, I had no doubt. <laughs> but every every aspiring politician believes they're going to win, I think. But I, yeah, I didn't doubt that I would get there. And I, I of course, did have a very big sympathy vote. I also had the the relationship issues and PNG is a society built on relationships. And so I, you know, I had relationships from family, relationships from school, all my children's relationships because they grew up in the village and went to school in PNG. Uh, And yeah, I didn't have any doubts. And also I brought in a different style of campaigning that kind of did catch people's attention. Can you elaborate on that? What, What was that style of campaigning? Well, the normal campaigning was often big rallies and making lots of promises that never be able to fulfill. You know, everything people wanted, you were going to deliver it. Uh, and I did an educational campaign talking about the power, talking about the power of the vote, and and then talking about what I would try to do. And then when they asked me things that I knew I would not be have control over, I would explain to them, I can't promise you that because. I can advocate, I can lobby, I can talk, but I can't promise it because I don't control the water. It's controlled by a company, you know? So, yeah. Uh, And I think this different style of campaigning also caught people's attention. I remember in one settlement community, a very poor community, the youth used to always hang around the back. And I used to try to call them forward, but they wouldn't. But at the end of one campaign, a young man came up to me and said, he just looked at me and said, thanks for giving me hope. And then he just slipped away. I didn't even get his name. And later I often wondered, did I dash his hopes sometime when I was in a bad mood, you know? Yeah. 
But I think, it, you know, I did take a different approach from the norm. So after you were elected, what were the early days of Parliament like for you? It was a huge learning experience. I had a couple of very good colleagues who helped mentor me. They had um, been in politics for quite a while and they'd been to university with Bury and myself. Yeah, so I did have some good mentors, but it was a steep learning curve. And I think only after 15 years when I, I knew I was going to retire, because I, I had said I'll do three terms, no more. By that stage, I was getting better at the job, I think. Like if I went in now, I'd be much better at the job. It's interesting you say that. What were the skills that you needed to be better at the job? Like what does it take to be good at that job? I just think I could have been more strategic. Although I was a very strategic politician I, I for uh, Melanesian culture, I, I didn't ever try to force my things I would, if I could see I was getting nowhere with some people, I'd ask male colleagues to take up the issue for me on my behalf if they believed on it, in it. And quite often, when I was getting towards the final stage of perhaps some work, like the urbanization policy, I handed it over to a male colleague because I knew he had more power in in cabinet to get funding. You know, you've got to look at the, the power structures in politics to get what you need. So... Um, I take a policy of friends to all enemies to none. And if I'd gone back after taking a stand and opposing the overthrow of government, I think I, I wouldn't have been, I, there would have been a much b- bigger push to get rid of me. Do you think you faced the same challenges as a woman in politics in Papua New Guinea as women who were born and raised in Papua New Guinea? No, no, definitely not. That's why I work so hard on affirmative action. When when I when we changed from first past the post to preferential voting, I thought it would give women more chance. But then I found myself back in Parliament, just me, nobody else. And I thought, no, it's not good enough. It's not going to help them. And so I, I then started to push very hard on affirmative action. But again, we didn't get it through in the end. For them, I mean, the men, my male colleagues said things to me like, oh, we don't mind you being here, Carol, but we don't want our own women in here. You know, the, the cultural and, uh, barriers are very strong for them. And you've got to remember, I was brought up in a society that had can't gone through the patriarchal dominance issue to a certain degree. And so I perhaps didn't have that so much entrenched in my mindset as some of the um, Indigenous women, or when they tried to challenge it, you know, it didn't come go down as well for them as perhaps I could get away with it. So definitely, I think I had advantages. And that's why it's so important. I'm working on issues now to try to work on getting women in in 2022. When you say that the male politician said to you, we don't want local women here in parliament, what do you think was motivating that? Remember, and that's not all of them remember, that's a generalisation, but some would echo that, that opinion. Probably just the ingrained idea that Politics and oratory is the male domain, not the female domain, traditionally public oratory. Um, That doesn't mean that women were not powerful traditionally. The most powerful person in our household in the village was my late mother-in-law. The decisions were made there in the household and she she would steer those decisions, but it was always the males in the clan who would take them into the public sphere, making the speeches and the oratory. So there's a separation between the public and the private sphere that needs to be unpacked and get people to think about it more, that women did have power traditionally. Women were not beaten to a pulp like they are nowadays. That is not cultural. 
In fact, I saw practices that were protective. It's a, it's a factor of a changing society and, and differential rates of change and very, very complex issues at play. And it's very sad to see it. Of course, the issue of gender-based violence has been particularly prevalent in Papua New Guinea in recent months. And it's interesting to hear you say that it's not cultural. Because there were protective customs that would intervene. The woman's family would not allow the man's family to beat her up. They would come and rescue her. And then the man's family would have to pay more um, bridal. I don't like to say bride price because the word, the translation of the custom into price commodified women and originally this custom was recognizing the wealth of women but it's been it's changed now into price because of the way it was translated yeah traditionally the woman's family could take them and then the man's family would have to pay more give more more um pigs and bananas and things like that for her to come back and if it could if he was violent to her towards her she could keep the children the payment of bridal wealth gave the man's family the right to the children. If the marriage broke up, for the woman to get the children, she'd have to, it'd have to be shown that, you know, she'd been, her, her, she'd been abused and things. Otherwise, the children belong to the man's family. Mm. It's, it's very complex to do in a very short interview. We could talk for weeks on it. So you left politics in 2012, the same year that Papua New Guinea enacted their gender and social inclusion policy. Since you left, have you seen any improvements in women's ability to enter politics in Papua New Guinea? Yes, but whether it's as genuine as it needs to be, I'm not too sure. Uh, I mean, for a while there was this statement that coming from the Prime Minister's office that there would be no special seats of any sort for women. Now that's turned around and I've got the Constitutional Law Reform Commission working on some form of affirmative action for women, whether it will be enacted before 2022, I don't know, but I think there is a push to enact it before 2022. There is a downside, of course, in that it will make it harder for women to win open seats, the normal electorates, because people will say, oh, you've got your seats now, that's enough, you know, and five women isn't enough. But um, yeah, but it's better five than nothing. It's, it's, you know, what do you go for? Yeah. Of course, in the 2017 election, 165 women ran and not one was elected. What impact do you think that has on aspiring female politicians in Papua New Guinea? I'm hoping it's going to make them more determined because I've had a few meetings with women before the, the COVID situation. We had some fairly large meetings and I think it's making them even more determined uh, that they're going to go there. And I've been encouraging them, look, whether, you, whether you've got a chance to win or not, if you want to, put in your nomination fee and put your name in. Make it very clear that women want to get in there, even if you know that, you know, I want to encourage as many as possible to stand. And I don't know if that's a good strategy or not, but I want a statement that we want to be in there. And hopefully in amongst those people, there'll be a few, there's certainly a few that will go close. What do you think compels those women to enter politics? What are the main motivating factors for them? Oh, it, that's it's a very difficult question because it's so variable. Probably a lot of them are just angry at the lack of space. They're angry at the, the way things have been going, that our health system, our education system, all of these things have deteriorated. We all know that. And so do the politicians know that things have deteriorated. Over time, even when I was in politics, that was starting because unfortunately, 
a policy was introduced called District Services Improvement Program, DSIP, and that puts funding directly through political hands. Although there are supposed to be checks and balances, basically it's making the politicians into project deliverers rather than policymakers, lawmakers, and that higher level that a parliamentarian should be. So I, I think we're in a difficult situation now because the politicians are now seen by the people as someone to give them goodies and to deliver rather than the public service. It's been uh, weakened by this process. So there's so some very fundamental structural things that have caused problems. And of course, there, there is corruption, but there's also many good politicians working in very difficult circumstances because traditionally a chief or a big man was expected to look after his people directly. And he could do that by distributions of wealth because it was public, it was visible, and so it was accountable. This issue of accountability was there traditionally, small-scale societies. But nowadays, because the distribution of wealth is not so public and visible, the, the accountability factor has become a problem. I'm not familiar with that district services improvement program. That's new to me. District services improvement program where large sums, we're talking millions of kina, goes through the local MP and then he has a committee to administer those funds under guidelines. But I was in there when that started and I know that the guidelines can be kind of stretched. Why was that program started in the first place? I think a bit of frustration with the public service. I remember sitting in meetings where members would say, um, the public service aren't getting it done, just give us the money, we'll do it. You know, I mean, well-intentioned, but a dead-end road when you start putting the funding through politicians rather than through the machinery that's supposed to deliver. And so we've, we've damaged the service delivery machinery as well. Yeah, and so we've got some very fundamental structural things that won't change probably because it's the politicians who would have to vote out the district services improvement program, and I don't think they're going to. Some would, some definitely would. Some of us used to lobby against it, but there are some still lobbying against it, but they're not the majority. You did mention before the approach of reserving seats for women in Parliament, and you were, of course, involved in some efforts for the 2017 election to reserve seats for women, which didn't work. Why do you think that failed? It went very close, but that was the time of what we call the political coup, if you remember the overthrow of government, and that decimated the numbers. The what became the opposition boycotted, and so I was sitting as leader of an opposition of two people, and so all those other numbers were missing and there weren't the numbers to, to, to pass the enabling organic law. The constitutional change was made. And so there is a provision that's saying that there shall be special seats reserved for women and a Samset clause was written that uh, will be def defined by the organic law. And the organic law was making it those special seats would follow the regional boundary of the governors. And of course the governors got very uh, uh, unsettled, they thought it was an attempt to get rid of their seats, whereas it was going to add to, you know, a, a, a woman's seat in each one. They just weren't the numbers to pass the enabling organic law. The constitutional change was made, but not the enabling organic law, because by that stage, Parliament had fallen apart. There were two prime ministers to, you know, 
I don't know, you remember that time in the history. You are involved in efforts now to have women elected in the 2022 election. Can you tell me about those efforts? Well, a couple of prominent Papua New Guinean women academics and people, we kind of met one day just by chance and I said, look, what are we going to do? And they were saying the same. We've got to do something before 2022. And so we held a meeting, and this is before the COVID situation had developed, um, we had a meeting called people together just to brainstorm the whole thing on how can we get over the line without relying on donor projects. And it was a very, it was a good meeting. It had some good outcomes. And then we couldn't have the second follow-up meeting because of the restrictions under COVID of numbers. And so I, we continued on with just a couple of the leading women and myself, and we've got a framework together. So there's been work happening with Papua New Guinean women themselves who are saying it's time we try to do this without the donors, without relying on development partner projects because we want to design them ourselves. So that there is that movement kind of going on that I'm involved with. And also I'm, I will be working with UN Women on the Women Make the Change project. I'm nervous about that because the first stages of it obviously are more academic and I hate, I hate the desktop type work but I'll get that done and then get into the practical work. And I think we all feel there's no good just working with women. It's the women, you know, it's not the women who vote and women often don't vote for women. We've got to influence the community mindsets. We have to find ways to get in there and find ways through whatever means to start getting people to rethink the mindset about women having a rightful place in politics. You made an interesting point at the start there that it's important to have initiatives that don't rely on donors or aren't donor funded. And I know that international donors are investing a lot in in trying to help women get elected in Papua New Guinea. So why not rely on the donors? There has to be a push from women themselves who feel it, who design it according to the way they think might work more effectively. There's undoubtedly been a lot of good work done but we're certainly not cracking this issue of changing community mindsets. We, we did video clips and things when we were working on it back when I was in politics, but it's going to take a lot more than that. And I, I've said with this task I've just taken on with UN Women, I'm hoping that when the COVID restrictions are over, when we get to the practical side of it, I don't want to work in workshops just with women. I want to work with women in communities. The men can make comments, you know, and and try to get people really analysing because Papua New Guineans are not stupid. (laughs) They're very smart. I mean, that raises the broader, bigger question of whether external donor-funded projects can meaningfully change women's experience of leadership and leadership opportunities in in a particular country. Oh, yeah, they can influence it because they they can influence definitely because they teach teach a lot of just straightforward technical knowledge. they, 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 they teach a lot of things that are very useful, but there has to be more yet. And we have the problem that the way a woman would campaign in the Highlands will be the way different from the way I campaigned in Motu society. And the way I campaigned in Motu society, my husband's tribal group, which is the indigenous people of the city, was different from the way I campaigned in the settlements. Not fundamentally different, but different in the way I communicated and interacted. And we've got to realise that we've got to help women develop their style suited to their own 
linguistic and cultural background as well um, with the certain things that are that have to stay as they are you know there are certain things that you can't change the the basic fundamentals that you want in politics and democracy of uh, integrity accountability all those things and yet you're, you're competing with very big money politics nowadays which has come out of the big man system of the highlands culture uh, and so but it has now permeated the whole country. But I, I think it's amazing that we have not actually completely fallen apart. When you look at what we're trying to do, to build a nation out of all these different tribal groups who traditionally were antagonistic, and in some areas the tribal fighting continues, and then it comes into the urban areas. Um, I, I think PNG tends to, we can tend to muddle through, uh, and quite often, you know, you think, oh, God, this is it. That's the end. It's going to fall apart now. And then we muddle through. Yeah, it's, it's a funny, it's a funny um, culture. But in the next generation where those traditional underlying, underlying respect and things from the traditional social relationships are perhaps not there in the younger generation, maybe, maybe we won't continue to muddle, muddle through. I don't know. I don't mean to be rude because I'd been a politician, so I'm saying I muddle through as well. So to finish then, is it getting better or is it getting worse for leadership in Papua New Guinea? Well, see, I mean, so many things eventually would, will get resolved um, by, uh, in kind of partly traditional ways. Uh, for example, when we had the political coup and Peter, uh, Peter O'Neill took over from Sir Michael when he was in hospital, it was very understandable. People were very frustrated, but it was actually illegal. And um, I had a lot of media up from Australia. And one time, one of them said to me, oh, Carol, can't you organise some bloodshed? I'm being frank. A media person said, can't you organise some bloodshed? Our, our bosses in Australia want to see some action. And I said, there won't be. It will go through and gradually people will, because you have to show, you know, you work through things and eventually, yeah, it kind of worked through and there were peacemaking things done on the sidelines between people. You know, now well, whether that will happen in the next generation is another question. I'm talking to you as if you can see my facial expressions. <laughs> Just to clarify, do you think Australian media were trying to encourage political conflicts in Papua New Guinea just to stir Not up the necessarily. story? They, they just saw me as a friend because I was the same skin colour probably. And it was done partly in jest. I said, look, there's not going to be, there's not going to be. It's, it'll, we'll muddle through and it'll take us a few months and things. It won't happen in this week. Tell your, tell your bosses it's not going to happen. And, and, you know, that's what happened. Because uh, nobody was going to come storming in and start shooting me and my colleagues who were still in the, in the cabinet room while the others were up in the parliament, you know, there were two camps, they weren't going to storm in. And when they did eventually come in to take over the cabinet room, it was, oh, okay, hello, and we all shook hands and in the way you would do, in, you know, and, and we walked out and that's when we walked out, they wanted to know, well, isn't anything going to happen? I said, no, it'll work out in the end. Heavens knows how it'll work out, but it will. I know that might sound flippant, um, but it has helped us to get through difficult times because that traditional um, uh, leadership styles were there of mediation uh, and, and talking things through for hours and hours and hours and days and days and days, you know. Uh, I think the next generation will be more impatient.
Okay, to finish then, what's next on the agenda for you? What will your next few months of work entail in Papua New Guinea? Well, working on this work with UN Women and the other thing in my personal life, I've been working on a social enterprise trying to convert where we live on customary land into a a viable future for family because most of them don't have work. The Indigenous people of the city are probably the worst off in the city. And so we're setting up a little retreat and things. And culturally, it's been, and financially, it's been very challenging because we're kind of, hmm, it's very hard. When you say a retreat, is that for tourism? Like, will you have somewhere for people to come it's and stay? tourism and also for people who come from overseas. Eventually, we'll advertise it. But we're, we're just doing it little bit by little bit because we don't have, I have a professional accountant now, but we need a professional manager, but we can't afford one. And so we're just taking through bit by bit and all of the people are not actually trained, but they're learning and I'm learning. And we're all learning. That's really exciting. I've, I've been so lucky to do a lot of travel in Papua New Guinea in recent years. And funnily enough, it's the thing I've missed the most in lockdown this year is going to PNG. So it's exciting to hear there's a new tourism social enterprise coming. Well, you'll have to come to Tutu Beach Retreat. I would absolutely love to. Thank you so much for your time, Dame Carol. I really appreciate it. That was episode 91 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and we'll see you next week.